This is an ABC podcast. Hello again, welcome to the show. Today on the minefields, plus ça change, etc. Uh, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And I, I guess I'm getting at, Scott, this is one of those issues that doesn't go away. I fi- have, have, you're very good at this. Have you ever counted up the number of times we've spoken about today's topic yes. in the show's history? Yes, yeah. I have, as a matter of okay. fact. Yes. I mean, we've actually tackled something like this or, say, a cognate issue four times since our show began, which given the enormity of the issue... Is that all? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 18. No. Well, I mean, we've probably touched on it in the course of other conversations. Maybe, maybe that, that's many what it times. is. Maybe that's what it is. But, I think, but, I, but I'm excited about today because, well, you've promised me at the very least that we'll be looking at it in a very different way. Yeah. And maybe I'm not thinking about our show. Maybe I'm overcome just by how often it's discussed in public discourse generally. Should I just rip the band-aid off and say what the topic is? Yeah, go for it. All right. We're talking about climate change today. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I thought so. But what are we doing differently? Well, let's take a few steps back. First, it's probably worth noting that as per last week, you're still a wee bit under the weather. So if your voice kind of feels a little bit more gravelly, you know. It's, it's, it's kind of nice for leaning into the radio device. It is. I'm just or, trying to match the gravity of the topic. Oh, really? That's, right. that, that's pretty cool. Um, look, it, it struck me a few weeks ago. It actually struck me in April last year. And then it was kind of reiterated to me by my own conscience, maybe. Now that the ravages of COVID-19 are beginning to subside, I mean, there are all sorts of things, I think, about the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about our interconnectedness that have probably changed. But it's also now that these kind of the emergency situations that we've been living under have begun to go something like back to normal. Vaccines are beginning to roll out. Isolation and COVID, other forms of COVID restrictions are beginning to ease, although, of course, other things are remaining in place uh, for at least the next few months. It's worth going back, I think, to maybe what precisely we were feeling around this time last year. And there was something about the seismic experience that the fires that raged in this country at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, there was something about the seismic nature of that experience that I think got lost way too quickly. Um, it was covered over too quickly. It was lost among other seemingly more pressing concerns, although I can hardly imagine what concerns can be more pressing. One, one of the things, I think, about that experience was the immediacy of it. Um, I mean, there was something about the image, about the sheer number of people, about the sheer number of, of non-human fellow creatures that were affected by that, that I think should have horrified us for far longer than it in fact did. But the other thing, Waleed, is, I mean, do you notice, do you remember around this time last year, maybe even a little bit sort of more than a year, remember the conversations, how quickly they shifted in so many wings of the media onto who was really responsible for these fires? You remember the reporting about arson and arsonists, and there was the usual 
political criticisms of those who shifted the blame or shifted the topic of conversation too quickly from the immediacy of the loss of life and the immediacy of ecological devastation and on to topics like climate change. This is not the time to talk about climate change. Mm. This is the time to mend people's wounds, to deal with the loss of property and life. Except, can I interpose here? Yeah. It didn't work. No, it didn't. Which I thought was really significant. So for the first time, well, really ever, as far as I can remember, that attempt to say now is not the time only energised the desire to talk about it. I think that's right. Why, why do you think that is, or that was? Um, I think part of it was that you had people who were victims of the bushfires who were putting it on the agenda. I don't know how big that was or wasn't. I just remember interviewing people like that. Hmm. Um, And I think part of it was the sheer scale of it. Yeah. A feeling that we'd been somewhere similar not that long ago and we shouldn't. That we're having a lot of one in a hundred year bushfires. Hmm. Um, You know, I just think it reached a critical mass where people were finally prepared to, to confront it. And then maybe at the level of just base politics, I think the fact that Scott Morrison and the coalition government really didn't seem to want to talk about it for a little while, incentivised talking about it, whereas other politicians in the parliament did. And so you probably didn't have this blanket approach. Clearly politicians somewhere sniffed the wind and said that the public doesn't find it distasteful to talk about climate change this time. Mm. And so people didn't. Now we can have an argument over whether or not that means anything or, or meant anything, um, in the aftermath and COVID obviously interrupts that quite significantly. But I do think there was something in the fact that it was spoken about in spite of the pleas, nay orders of some within the political class. And I think there was maybe even a degree of that kind of naughty transgressive rebelliousness that came through too. It's kind of like someone telling you before you walk into a chapel, you know, don't giggle during the service or don't laugh during a funeral. And then suddenly everything you see becomes unbearably funny. Um, uh, As soon as you're told not to discuss something, especially when we're confronted with something of that scale, of that enormity, um, once we're exposed to something, I think, that simply can't be ignored uh, or that can't be minimized in any way. Um, It really does, it it, it impresses itself upon us. I think it makes a claim on our attention that just can't be washed away. There's something I've been thinking a lot about, though, and, and this probably is a topic. This is a way of framing it that we have talked about many, many other times and in many other contexts. And that's that it seems to me that so much of modern life is structured around or is cultivated to minimize our awareness of the expensiveness of the way that we live, of the costs that our lives inflict on the world around us. If you think about, you know, it's something that Ralph Waldo Emerson, this great 19th century American kind of philosopher, kind of essayist, it's what he called our graceful distance from the things that must pay for the way that we live, our graceful distance. So it's the other side of the world, or it's the other side of a label, or it's the other side of the plastic uh, film, or it's the other side of the screen or of the window or outside the air conditioning we enjoy, or, or, or away from the carefully paved roads and manicured gardens. It's kind of like everything about the way that we live is designed to insulate us from or even anesthetize us to the true cost 
that the way that we live exacts upon the world around us and upon the other creatures, the other people, human and non-human alike, that share this world with us. And it's kind of like that what the fires of last year did is it it melted away. I, I realize the metaphor is, is kind of maybe a little bit tasteless, but I think it's purposeful. It melted away every barrier that we might have to the full exposure to or confrontation with the true cost of the way that we live on the world around us. And, and, and this is something I think that's a very powerful theme over the last two thousand, uh, over the last 200 years, I beg your pardon, when there's been any movement that tries us to look beyond the narrow confines of what we might call immediate or direct causality. So, for instance, if you go back uh, 150 years, if I don't have a slave, then I'm not implicated in the ravages of slavery. Whereas one of the great intellectual gestures, one of the great moral triumphs, I think, of those who campaigned ferociously to abolish slavery, one of the things that they did was was to trace out the network of complicities, the network of conspiracies. You know, when you drop that sugar in your tea, that sugar is laced with the blood of slaves. When you put that cotton shirt on your back, that cotton has been picked by the bloody fingers of slaves. When you breathe air, that air is already full of the unmet, the unrequited aspirations of some for freedom. And I think it's a, it's this great gesture, and I think it's a wonderful moral coup to be able to say that you might think you're enjoying a certain graceful distance from the cost of the way that you live, the cost, the expense that's being inflicted upon others. But then there comes that moment of exposure where you're confronted with, this is the penalty for the way that I live. This is what has to pick up the tab. This is what has to pay the cost for the way that we are living too expensively if I can put it that way. And I think what the fires did then is it was this moment of great exposure where the alibis that we surround ourselves with suddenly dropped away. Can I just, can I bring up one other thing, Willie? And, and you, you might not like this at all. I, I know that you don't like metaphor. For Hang the most on, part. that's a bit rough. That is a bit I rough. Do. You don't like metaphor. I like metaphor. I just think moral it can sometimes be promiscuous. Hey. I think it has to be very like carefully that. looked at. Okay. Yes. Well, um, if, I can, if I can go back to a moment, yes, this is about climate change. It's not about the abolition of slavery. But if you go back to 1853, you know, one of the names that we know very, very well is the name of Frederick Douglass. I think one of the things that the, the narratives of, uh, of slavery escapees, those who have escaped from slavery, have made their way into something like freedom only to find that slavery – hounds them, continues to hound them. I mean, uh, the, the, the narratives of slave escape, of slave liberation were wildly popular in the middle of the 19th century. And you have someone like Frederick Douglass, this lionine figure who roared his denunciations of political complicity at every level. But a person that I've been really, I've grown increasingly attached to over the last year is another escaped slave, uh, a man named William Wells Brown, who was in many respects a far better moral philosopher than Frederick Douglass was. He was an extraordinary novelist. And he was asked to address a group of people, uh, an, anti-abolition, sorry, an abolition society, anti-slavery society. And he was asked to come along almost as a kind of show pony, as a trick horse, you know, someone who can come and, and tell his story and amaze them with what he did and what he's managed to accomplish since. 
And he said to them quite powerfully, if I were to tell you about the truth of slavery, he says, I can't tell you about it from this distance. He says, there comes a point where I would need to take you out in a side room and tell you about slavery only ever in a whisper. And I think what he was getting at there, it's a, it's a nice little turn of phrase, but I think what he was getting at is there comes a moment then when our complicity in the ravages of the world around us, that complicity has to be shattered by proximity. There has to be a moment where we are exposed to the costs of the way that we live. And that can only be done in close proximity to or when truly confronted with uh, those who must bear the expense of the way that we live. And it seems to me that even though for many of us, say those of us in Queensland, the fires that ravaged the south coast of New South Wales, there was a distance But such was the heat that we were all exposed. We lost the element of deniability. So what I thought we could talk about today, and we've got a great guest to do it. We're going to come to her in a moment. How do our normal conceptions of individual or moral responsibility, how do they get beaten around, if you like, by what it is that is demanded of us by something like climate change? Because you often hear individual responsibility is evoked either in the face of bushfires or in the face of, or even national responsibility uh, uh, in the face of climate change as almost something that's negligible, something that's too small. Uh, If we cut our emissions, it would make no difference at all. If I change my lifestyle, it'll make no difference at all. So I guess what I'm wondering is, does something like the moral imperative of climate change and of, of, of ecological disaster, does this necessarily, much the same way that slavery did, does this demand that we change the way that we think about moral accountability, moral responsibility, moral agency? And if it does for this issue, then does it also change the way that we think about moral accountability, individual responsibility for many other moral challenges? It seems there's a lot at stake there though, Scott, doesn't there? Because I guess this is true for every complicity argument. Hmm. If you define it so broadly that life becomes unlivable, you effectively initiate every human being into some social or political version of original sin Hmm. from which they cannot escape by their mere existence and absent some kind of miraculous um, sacrifice that somehow redeems this. And I worry about that because... If you, if you were to go too far down that track, it seems that the only likely and maybe even the only reasonable response is to reject that in toto. Almost self-exile. Well, no, just to reject the whole concept of complicity. As oh, it's right. Applied. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Because it, it cannot be, can it, unless you embrace you know, some of the most extreme forms of nihilism, or maybe that's not the right word. Um, Renunciation, maybe. That the only ethical way to live is not to be alive. Mm-hmm. We can't be saying that, can we? No, but but the point that you make, I think, is a very real one, that you you have two moral extremes here. You have one which is essentially life under the conditions of an anesthetic, where 
by the way that we live, by the forms of deliberate thoughtlessness that we've adopted, by the comforts that we amass around ourselves, we are not aware of it at all. Or we live in a state of utter exposure where our complicity is inescapable. And therefore, we have to, in some ways, and this is something that, for instance, Henry David Thoreau struggled with, how can I justify my life in the world? Yeah. And I would argue that one extreme begets the other. Hmm. And I think there's a problem there. Um, can I put something to you then? Sure. Because I think one step in, say, from the anesthetized life pole is a life that is vaguely aware that has moments of recognition of the cost that my relatively luxurious life exacts upon others. And therefore, that life is then enabled by a series of inexpensive acts of penance. These little things that we do in order to make ourselves feel better, or or if you want to give the most generous kind of, it's a generous interpretation, it's doing that little bit that we can do to help, but without too much interruption. So this, say, would be the- Buying carbon offsets. Buying carbon uh, offsets or- or making charitable donations, or, for instance, eating RSPCA-approved meat mm. rather than not eating meat at all. These would be the kind of the small compromises that somehow enable an ongoing condition of relative complicity. Mm. What's your What's your moral? I mean, that that it seems to me is really problematic in all sorts of ways too. I can see exactly why you would say it's problematic, yeah. Yeah, but, I, I, I but just, what do you think? Uh, I think you have to get... Uh, uh, what I think would be specific to each case, I think, because I think notions of complicity only really work in the sense that they only penetrate the heart of people, mm-hmm. where they make sense to them, where they actually chime with their experience of the world. And so I think for every case, there comes a, a boundary, and I understand that that boundary would necessarily be fuzzy, where it becomes the, the, the furthest you can push it while it still makes some kind of intuitive sense to people about the complicity of the way they live their lives. Hmm. And if you push it beyond that, then you reach a point where it's like you're talking a language of complicity that is meaningless Interesting. Now. Interesting. Yeah. And as for where that boundary is, I can't tell you. I think... I can't tell you because I'm not really smart enough to, but I also can't tell you because I think it would vary in each, like with the specificities of every case. And sometimes we need to recognize as human beings, we are placed within certain structural conditions that make certain notions of complicity appropriate to be visited upon the individual and other notions of complicity not really appropriate Mm. and more appropriately visited upon people who have more influence over some of those structural dimensions. We're getting very theoretical now, so I should probably just move on. I think that's a, I I mean, that is, sorry, yes, we do need to move on. But I I actually think that's a very subtle and quite an important point. Because if, if I was right in what I said before, that there does need to come some moment in any kind of moral reckoning where we are brought into a condition of proximity. We, we, we are exposed to the reality of the world or the system of things around us, or we are suddenly and I think shockingly 
made aware of the interconnectedness of my life and that of, of others. I mean, that can be, not only is that a, a gradual, and not only does it need to be, I think, necessarily quite a carefully cultivated process. You, you don't kind of want everything all in one hit or even over the, say, the course of a good portion of one's lifetime if, if one wants a really serious moral reckoning. But I think uh, for the sense of our complicity the sense of our interconnectedness, to have that shape, to have that affect, for it not simply to remain theoretical and therefore fragile or flickering, it does have to take on some kind of material form. It has to be personal in that sense. And this is why I, I guess- in, It in also my, has to be plausible. It has to be plausible. Yeah, yeah. In quite an ordinary way. Yeah. Not See, plausible I, once I take you through all the metaphysics of it. Yes. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think this is where- Instead of individual responsibility or individual accountability, I guess I've come to think, I've begun to think, I guess, far more regularly in terms of what might it mean to take something that I really believe is really problematic. What might it mean for me to take that personally? Mm. Um, and I think when you say plausibly, I think that's probably bound up with the same idea. That's probably true. I'd have to think about it, but that would make for bad radio. <laughs> so I'd be sitting there in silence thinking. This is The Minefield. Uh, you can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. The show exists as a podcast, so you can listen to it anytime you like. You can do that via the ABC Listen app, uh, or you can follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, our guest is a great friend of this show. She's been a very regular guest from the very beginning of the life of this ridiculous little program. Danielle Sellemeyer is professor of sociology and social policy at University of Sydney. She's the author of, I, I really do need to say, an extraordinary and I think morally urgent new book. It's called Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. Before I say anything more about it, Danny, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you. Lovely to be home. <laughs> and in fact, I think just about every time you've spoken to us, you have spoken to us from home. Almost. Yes, I am. But now we're using different media, different structures of communication. But yes, I am embedded in my rainforest home. I like this one less, though, because we can't hear any farm animals. Oh, it's true. I have to bring the donkeys close by so yeah. that they can participate. <laughs> All right, well, I'm Scott sure, and I will just... I'm sure um, they have opinions on the matter. We'll just gas bag for a while while you go and get the donkeys <laughs> and let us know when you're ready to go. Danny, one, one of the remarkable things about your book, and it is written, I mean, it's written in a, in a white heat. It is one of the most morally impressive books I think I've ever read. It is written in the immediate aftermath of the fires of last year. But I, I don't want to start with the fires. Instead... I want to begin with the fact that what you, in fact, do in the book is you spin an elaborate and effectively winsome series of narratives whereby the reader is brought into a series of connections with human and non-human creatures. And it strikes me that one of the things that you're trying to demonstrate in that book is not just the interconnectedness of life in this world, but you're also trying to invite us, I think, to see those interconnections in a way that is, to quote Walid, 
that is that is affectively or emotionally plausible, and that is therefore it makes a claim upon us. It makes a claim on our attention. Is that is that what you were, I guess, self-consciously doing in trying to tell the story that you were trying to tell in Summertime? When I wrote The Beginnings of Summertime during what we now know of as the Black Summer Fires, uh, to be honest, I had a range of motivations. And to tie this back to the early part of your conversation when you were speaking about the early days of those fires when people were still speaking about arsonists and the Greenies having prevented the type of uh, burning that would have at least impaired the, the gravity of the fires. I wrote some of this in a rage about the way in which those conversations were trying to to place a veil before our eyes as the reality of the climate catastrophe was was literally burning at our doors. And so I felt a great deal of of frustration at the power. And and we we need to remember, you know, these these types of claims were on the front page of some of our more well-read newspapers in this country and were certainly circulating in the Twitter sphere very, um, very elaborately. And at the same time, and, and, and I think this is a different part of the conversation that hasn't come up yet, but you alluded to it in your question, Scott. I Often when we talk about responsibility or guilt or blame, this family of terms, it's a very backward-looking gesture. So we ask who is responsible for this in the sense of who done it, right? Who in, in legal terms who committed the act, the actus reus, and who had the bad intention, the mens rea, and therefore they are responsible to make right where there has been wrong. There's another type of responsibility, which we might call non-technically, the responsibility of love. And that is that when I am face to face with beings for whom I feel care, and connection and who contribute to the beauty and value of my life, I feel responsible for the possibility of their well-being, not because I am responsible for what happened to them, although that might be the case, let's bracket that, but I can feel responsible because I want it to be otherwise. And if we make this, you know, let's get this very intimate If you have a child or a parent or a loved one or a friend who is suffering or who is sick, we are likely to feel responsible for doing everything within our power to alleviate their suffering or bring them to a position where their illness is healed to the extent it can be, not because we were the cause of that, but because we have a desire for it to be otherwise for them. So I think that type of responsibility was really at the heart of the way that I told the story. I also talked about, and we can get to this, I talked about the more traditional notions of contributory responsibility. But one of the the things that I think we are finding out in having conversations about what is it that brings people to the table of taking responsibility for what needs to be done 
to mitigate or to adapt to the ravages of climate change is we need people to be connected to what it is that they love and what it is that they care about and what it is that they want to look after. And that type of intimate storytelling that I tried to do or tried to affect in this book, I think is one of the one of the ways that uh, we can bring people, you know, you spoke about the, the need to shatter through exposure. We can do that through the intimacy of care. Hmm. Which So what's interesting there, Danielle, is I hear that and I say that Scott's language of complicity is all wrong, that it's, that it's ultimately unhelpful. It's the wrong door through which we should, we should travel in order to get what we want people to do because complicity requires blame, right? It, it requires you to figure out who done it. And the problem with asking that question in response to something like climate change is that who done it becomes a really, really abstracted question, which is why the question of who lit the fire is an attractive one because that's at least tangible. That's easy. I can understand all of that. If we approach it by forgetting notions of complicity and look instead at notions of care, this kind of pastoral, solidaristic, perhaps fraternal relationship that we have with other people, then it seems that a lot of those questions that end up being the focus of debate in an example like climate change just sort of disappear. Uh, so my response is that there are many doors. You said it's the wrong door. I think if it's the only door, it's the wrong door. I would critique... Uh, so I, I broadly agree with you that I think this other way of thinking about responsibility is going to be critically important for inviting people to the table of action. The critique that I have of complicity is a slightly different one. Uh, I don't want to get too abstract here, but I do think we need to go back to some first principles about the way that we think about responsibility and the stories that we tell about responsibility that our dominant notions of responsibility are tied to a particular conception or a particular understanding of human beings as these autonomous individuals endowed with freedom and so agency. So in other words, we assume that someone can be held responsible to the extent that they freely act. And again, that's expressed really clearly in this legal notion of, you know, you have to commit the act and you have to have the intention to act and so responsibility is mitigated to the extent that you're not acting fully autonomously. And complicity, even though it moves responsibility out beyond the individual, it still retains that notion of individuals who are acting in ways that are complicit. So it's still retaining that same notion that we are autonomous individuals. And I think this is what Scott was getting at when he talked about interdependence and another term which is commonly used now and I think is better in some ways is entanglement that even though we have this particularly in kind of liberal late modernity we have this view of ourselves as being individuals who freely choose as soon as we look a little bit carefully we see the extent to which our actions and our choices are embedded in these broad patterns of understanding that we are socialised into, born into, and 
so that at the same time as we feel like we're acting freely, we're also acting within a script. And I think the notion, um, the model of language is a really useful one here. So, you know, these are my words that I'm speaking. Uh, no one's given me a script to read off here. And yet I'm using uh, a set of words that are common to us and a grammatical structure that allows me to say certain things and prevents me to sit from seeing others. And so rather than uh, moving to complicity, as a way of broadening out responsibility, a number of, you know, large number of theorists, going back to Hegel's notion of Sittlichkeit or Larry's, Larry May's notions of the, a kind of climate of attitudes or dispositions, uh, Bourdieu's notion of the habitus, probably the best person here I think is Iris Marion Young's notion of a social connection model, that we are embedded in these worlds of meaning, in these uh, structures that constrain and enable our action. And it's by virtue of that type of participation in these systems or structures that we bear responsibility. Look, that's all That's all wonderful. Let, let me just try to say something, though, for complicity. Uh, Danielle and Waleed, I acknowledge from the outset that it is a very, very limited notion because it does contain within it the idea that an agent has actively bought into something, uh, that there's been that fundamental choice or that decision whereby one is actively taking part in something that is then having deleterious or harmful or destructive, catastrophic effects on on others. Whereas the idea of entanglement or or one's place in, say, a system of language whereby the words are mine and yet not mine, I mean, that's all that's all right. That's all, I think, precisely proper. But I think one of the problems that we run into, and, and again, I wouldn't even want to elevate complicity to the primary notion here, much less elevate guilt to a fundamental concept. But I think one of the problems when when agency is so diffuse, when everyone is to blame, that lends itself then to participating in, say, perfunctory acts of acknowledgement. So in a generalized condition where everyone is to blame, then precisely no one is to blame and therefore no one is, quote unquote, responsible. There's That provides a, a certain moral alibi that I think unless very, very, very carefully cultivated, then leads back into a condition of everyday or ongoing what Hannah Arendt called thoughtlessness, the simple kind of oblivion, the forgetting that we knew something in the first place. What complicity does, and again, I, I don't see it as a total notion or even as necessarily on its own a helpful notion, but it is a way, I think, of affectively registering that I am part of something, that by my being part of it and by certain everyday acts that on their face don't seem to be morally objectionable, I am participating in and prolonging the effects of that thing and that the cost of that thing is being borne by someone, by creatures, human, non-human alike, that I assiduously do not wish to acknowledge. In other words, complicity becomes that moment where the suffering of others makes its claim upon me. It becomes that moment where I allow myself to take the sufferings of others 
personally. Does that on. does that help at all, or have I just dug myself further in a hole? No, I don't. I, I don't know that the hole's changed. I just think that everything you've just said there can be achieved via the fraternal or solidaristic route. Like, what it, what is it that? How did you express it, Danielle? Was it care? Care or love or the desire for other beings to flourish or not to suffer. So, how is it that that? What, what is it that that doesn't achieve that complicity does? What it what it doesn't achieve, I think, it doesn't give us, I think it gives us a proper horizontal, if I can use this really awful metaphor, it gives us a proper horizontal relationship to that which is around us and that which is brought within our sphere of care. And that's, uh, I would not want to sacrifice that for anything in the world. I mean, that for me is this essential dimension of proximity that we were talking about before. I actually, I actually think it's the exact opposite of that. I think the care, love paradigm is a horizontal one. I think once you bring in notions of complicity... Sorry, that's it... what I'm saying, Willie. That, that's, sorry, I didn't okay, myself, sure. make myself clear, but yeah. care, care is, that, is the immediacy of the horizontal dimension. Whereas, so you want something vertical. I do, whereas something like complicity... And, and, and again, I realise, I mean, guilt, I really do think... However much I, I suspect deep down that to some extent guilt is unavoidable, guilt must remain, I think, part of our equations. It does strike me that what complicity does is it does help us reckon with the fact that there has been an accumulation of debt over time and that we are recipients of debts that have been incurred, and we believe that those debts do not have to be repaid by anything then that we do. I don't like the economic metaphor. It's actually something, though, that, that, that Rawls draws on, and I think he actually draws on it quite productively, that by, by the accumulation of debt, we now benefit, and yet we outsource the cost, the maintenance of that debt by sending it offshore or by placing it beyond our sphere of concern, believing that those who need to pick up the tab, if you like, uh, will eventually, although inhumanly, uh, um, be able to, in fact, repay it. So I guess I, I like what the idea of debt, what the idea of complicity does in the sense that it helps us affectively register the extent to which that we are now benefiting from, as Henry David Thoreau put it in, in Walden, we are now benefiting from the bounty of land which I did not clear, from trees which I did not plant, from air which I have not cultivated or sown, uh, and from nature which I have at best inherited. So I think that there's something about the language of, of debt and of complicity that gives us an affective dimension that I think we lose to our peril. If you've just joined us, this is The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens my co-host. Our guest today is Danielle Selamaya, Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney. Scott's left something way out there and Danielle's about to hit it for six. What do you want to say, Danielle? <laughs> Before that, I think I'm going to do something really disruptive and just say there is the most magnificent kookaburra outside my window eating a worm. I think we just need to bring in some otherness into this conversation for some, some colour and flight. So, complicity. Um, I, again, I want to advocate for the many doors approach. I don't think we need to just have one theory of responsibility here. I think, you know, this is a, such a, a gargantuan problem and there are going to be many ways, many stories that we tell about responsibility. 
so I I agree with what you're saying, Scott, about the that affective tenure of complicity. What it leaves out, and Wally touched on it earlier, is it leaves out system structures and institutions. So it's still, unless one explicitly brings them in. So it implies that I am complicit by virtue of the actions that I take. But what we need to add to this is that we are interpolated into systems or institutions that systematically generate inequalities and and injustices and suffering. So, for example, if we take issues around uh, gender inequality, there are institutions of at the intersection of gender and work that value certain types of work. So work outside the home gets paid, work inside the home doesn't get paid. That's the institution of our economic and gendered system at the moment. The language of complicity doesn't really allow us to get at the way in which that institutional structural arrangement within which we all live and work and speak systematically generates certain types of inequality and suffering. Now, that then points to the problem that I think you were raising earlier, but we didn't go to Waleed, is if that's the problem, then individuals acting autonomously are not going to be capable of really getting at what's generating the type of sufferings, inequalities, marginalisations. And let's put this it right square in the, in the realm of climate change, which we're talking about. We are all uh, living within fossil fuel generated economies and systems. We live assuming that we can get from A to B in a certain time. Our food systems are based on fossil fuel energy, our energy systems are based on the extraction of fossil fuels. And that's why individuals acting, even in uh, at the extreme, not just buying your chicken from the supermarket that has RSPCA uh, certified chicken, but going vegan, even that is not going to be sufficient to deconstruct those institutions that are generating the type of suffering that we're talking about. And that's why these are genuinely political and collective action problems. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that individual action isn't also important. I think it has performative value. I, you know, I think it we become more virtuous people, we demonstrate to others and we make a difference. But let's be clear, everyone changing their light globes is not going to address the climate change problem, that's only going to be addressed when we systematically change the way in which we produce energy, the way we think about progress, the way we think about what it is to be a human being in relationship to the more than human world. These are the big institutions or structures of meaning and material organisation within which we live. And it's those that are generating the real suffering and inequality and the language of responsibility really can't be 
morphed to describe that type of institutional generation of suffering without really doing violence to the language and getting us into very classic problems of collective attribution and so on. Yeah. I think also, if we're going to make this a common approach, it runs into an immediate problem, which is an epistemological one, right? So in the case of climate change, I think it's fairly easy to do this because you you can more or less demonstrate it scientifically. But, you know, if if you wanted to apply this approach to all manner of social problems, you mentioned gender inequality, you could talk about any kind of social injustice issue. Um you really run into the issue of having to establish the truth of your analysis, right? It's not hard, really, to come up with a theoretical or abstracted account for what it is that causes the harm. But very often, it is hard to elevate those beyond the level of being theoretical accounts that are falsifiable. Yes, and, yes, yes. <laughs> and so what happens then? Well, now you just have an argument over whether or not this theory particularly applies. We're seeing this all the time now in the way that our social discourse proceeds, right? So climate change is a neat example to use this model, I think, precisely because the theory that's being drawn on is so well established. I see this as a wonderful challenge that the way that I would put what you have have just, I think, very adeptly described is it's really difficult to tell structural stories. We can tell them theoretically, but we're really bad at telling them in the way, you know, stories tend to be at least the stories that we have told in the West for the last, you know, 150 years or so, um, tend to be stories about individuals doing things, wanting things in relationship to other individuals. And so I think there is a an urgent challenge that many of us who are in the business of telling stories, and I mean that broadly, I don't just mean novelists, uh, are being called upon of how do we tell stories in ways that are affectively laden, that are action-orienting, and that are capable of transmitting the type of complexity of causality that is normally relegated to these highly abstract theoretical analyses. And I don't think that we yet know how to do that, but I would not take the next step of saying it can't be done. See, what I would say to that is it's not merely that it's difficult, it's that it's highly contested and contestable. And that's where I think you run into... This is why I think the climate change example is different. I think the contestability of it is very different in the case of climate change, notwithstanding that we've been through years of that, you know, contest happening in the public debate. But I I would argue, I would submit for your consideration that there are various reasons for that that are not to do with the epistemological problems surrounding climate change per se. Whereas I think once you enter the social realm, I think those epistemological problems emerge. They're not merely problems of storytelling although that is an important problem that you identify, they're bigger than that. They're problems of knowledge. Yes, and they're problems that are exacerbated by the fact that we live in, we live within imaginaries or background stories that really do emphasise the the basic unit of being is the individual and human beings are these particular type of individuals who have freedom and agencies. And that is not a story we tell. That is the air that we breathe. So against that background, yes, it's very difficult. I sound so Pollyannish today that I'm like, yes, but there's good news as well. 
I, maybe the fact that, as you say, Waleed, climate change is such a no-brainer is another door into, okay, see that we can see that there are systemic causes at work here. Now let's look at where there are systemic causes at work in these various other places because now we have a model for thinking about causality somewhat differently to the model that we are habitually using to understand why things happen. There's something here, though, I think this is wonderful. This is this is one of the most productive, I think, conversations on this topic that we've had yet. I find this really, really encouraging. There is there is something though that I think we're missing here. I mean, Stanley Cavell, a very important philosopher to my mind, made a crucial distinction between what he called knowledge and acknowledgement. So he said mm-hmm. that when there's an absence of knowledge, that absence, I just don't know something, or there's not a kind of consensual agreement, then that can relatively easily be filled up or be rectified by the transmission or promulgation of knowledge. So when there's a lack of knowledge, there really is a lack of something that can hopefully be met. He says, but when there's a failure of acknowledgement, there's something different going on. So with certain social, moral, interpersonal, environmental crises, the real problem isn't that there's not that shared knowledge. And I, I, Waleed, I recognize entirely that on on certain issues, there absolutely is a kind of fundamental epistemological contestation, that there simply isn't that sort of that total of shared facts over which we are arguing about what the best thing to do is. Um, But with certain things, it's not that we don't know It's not that there's a failure or an absence of knowledge. It's that the knowledge is there, but that there's something else there as well. So as Stanley Cavell put it this way, he said, when there's an absence of knowledge, there's the lack of something. He says, when there's an absence of acknowledgement, there's the presence of something. There's the presence of something else. And that something else he calls something like, say, indifference or callousness or thoughtlessness, or in a very extreme example, uh, soul blindness. So, so for instance, Cavell says that in the instance of slavery, it's not that a slave owner doesn't know that the slave is a human. It's that he knows, but there's along with that knowledge, something else present. There's a callousness. There's a thoughtlessness. There's the inability to take that next step and to say that this person then makes a claim upon me. So even if we solved... I guess, some of the problems of knowledge, some of the epistemological issues, then we still have that additional problem, which I think is that we've been habituated into certain conditions of callousness, indifference, of mutual contempt, and contempt towards the non-human world. It's that habituated callousness, I think, that then remains a severe issue, and I don't see how certain structural rectifications then take care of that. I think that's a beautiful point to add to this, Scott. And if I might tie that back to a comment that you made, Waleed, when you two were speaking about uh, the difficulty of having this broad attribution of responsibility, the words that you used were life becomes unlivable if we feel fully responsible for all of the suffering with which we are connected. And when you said that, my thought was, well, life is already unlivable for 
many human beings and for many beings other than human. And so in making the claim, well, if I take on the responsibility for the true cost of my actions, then life will become unlivable. What one is failing to say is I am going to keep on doing what I am doing and let the cost be borne in terms of unlivability by other beings, which in turn ties back to where you started, Scott, about, you know, the language I would use for what you were talking about is the externalisation of costs. Mm. You know, I've been thinking lately about when I walk down a smooth road in the city, you know, an asphalt road, what did the ease of my walking cost? Who is bearing the cost of the fact that I'm not stumbling over stones or I don't have to take the time to watch where I'm walking so I can talk on my mobile phone and look at my screen? That cost is being borne by where that material was mined from, who was mining it, the carbon that was produced in the process of transporting it. So my failure to pay that cost, to actually pay what it truly costs, is being borne by others. And there is a callous refusal to see that when I say it's too much for me to actually take responsibility for that. Oh, there's so many things I want to say now, Scott, but the clock won't let me say it. Oh, I hate it when this happens. Part two, part two. Should we do the podcast extra? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, we've got to leave it there. Danielle, thank you. Good to have you on the show again, of course. Um, sad we didn't get any donkey's intervention. All you had was a description of a kookaburra, which is not the same, no, no. but I appreciate everything, it. Everything wise and smart that I said came from the donkeys. Oh, okay. It was channeling. Okay. Yeah, I wish I'd known. I wasn't dialed into that frequency. Danielle Selemeyer is Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney. Her latest book is Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.